You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation, Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. Hi, and welcome to Shrink the Virus with me, Rob Seltzer, and my exceptionally good friend. <laughs> We're not arguing at the moment, so that's a good sign. <laughs> Steve Allen. <laughs> We're not arguing, are we? Um, today is Saturday, the 11th of July, 1.22pm, uh, and it's really important that we time and date stamp it because things are moving very, very quickly, especially here in the state of Victoria, Steve. Uh, they certainly are. And you know what? Right at the top of the show, to I might just flag who our guest is this week. Please we don't. have Associate Professor Patrick Stokes, who is a philosopher at Deakin University. You'll hear him a lot in the media and he's in the um, written lots of articles on the conversation about all sorts of stuff, looking at the various arguments around it from f- various philosophical pers- pers- perspectives. I was just telling Rob, I've only just woken up from my mid-morning nap, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to get my mouth to say words that my uh, brain's thinking but my mouth doesn't agree with. Um, and Patrick is a fantastic guy and it's, we recorded the interview yesterday. We cover a broad range of topics. It's, it's really uh, I really enjoyed the interview with Patrick. Did you, uh, Robert? Do, you know, do you know what struck me is how similar our thinking is in terms of psychological thinking and philosophical thinking. We come at it from different angles, but we often end up on the same page. And especially his talking uh, about blame really intrigued me and got me hooked. Really nice way of thinking about things. But Steve, let's talk about what's happened in Victoria since the last podcast. Big things. Oh, what a week, what a week, what a week. And I think we're all exhausted and mm. a little bit frazzled and mm. uh, not surprisingly so. Obviously, um, the thing that happened last weekend in a big, you know, sort of flurry of activity and just happened immediately and shocked a lot of people back to the coronavirus reality, I suspect, was the lockdown of uh, oh, about nine, um, nine uh, commission flats in mm. uh, North Melbourne, Kensington, Flemington, around there. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, they were locked down, bang, of you know, all you know, the police arrived at the flats as the prime minister was announcing the uh, mm. lockdown. Uh, not the prime minister, premier. the premier was announcing yeah. the lockdown in a media conference, and then, of course, um, you know, whatever it was, uh, four or five days after that, it was announced that the whole uh, of metropolitan Melbourne and a few other um, areas adjacent to metropolitan Melbourne region were going back into stage three restrictions. What we last time calling ISO, isolation, um, where, you know, there's essentially, essentially uh, you've got to stay at home and there's only four reasons to leave the house, work, healthcare, shopping, and exercise. And no visitors, you're not allowed to have visitors in your house, um, except, you know, if it's to, you know, deliver healthcare, you know, families supporting each other. Can I tell you about that, Steve? Yeah, Just, you know, coming out of ISO from the last time, we were just, we just made a whole lot of plans for every weekend with a whole lot of friends, all cancelled now. Right, I got yeah. quite a few. You know, between last I saw and this, I yeah. probably went out to dinner. I don't know about half a dozen times. So mm. you know, that's okay. And caught up with For a you, lot of friends. It's nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, but I was still. That was out to dinner. I was still yeah. going to friends' houses for dinner and stuff, or you know, all within the rules yeah. during that time. Yeah. And uh, I was back at the gym. I'd been to the gym about three or four times, and I'd been to about four or five swims both my my pool opened first and then my gym opened you had to book in it was all very online and you had to you know book in advance and stuff like that but there was a real sense the footy restarted there was you know normality returned and then you know and of course all of us when we talked about it on this podcast in fact i think i nicknamed it um, toxic complacency uh, one or two shows ago, we all noticed how complacent everyone well, was, well, how me, we were seeing people walking down the street and hugging and stuff. And, and let me, of course, let me now, pick up on that. For let me pick up on, that, back. Yeah, pick on up. that complacency because last week or just a couple of days ago, the Premier of Victoria uh, released a statement saying face masks to help uh, fight coronavirus in Victoria and basically. The recommendations from the chief health officer was that we, uh, if we can't socially distance, then we should wear a face mask. Um, and that was a recommendation and it's not uh, compulsory. So I, I, I know I did the 
the I guess the I thought the right thing, and I, I got some face masks. And my daughter and I went down to the market today, the the South Melbourne market, to do some shopping. And um, it was great, you know, and I had the face mask on, and all those things from when you when you stick on a face mask, you know, the, your glasses cloud up, people can't quite hear what you're saying because they can't see your mouth, you feel hot and whatever, you know, all those things that everybody's complained about. Um, but doing it outside, you know, in a market area. And look, a lot of people were wearing face masks. It was really, really great. But then, you know, I noticed some people weren't. And I, and I was thinking, what is it that um, would convince people to wear face masks and what stops people from wearing face masks if given that it's been this recommendation? Do you think it's a... It's kind of like, oh, look, it wouldn't be happening to me. I'm not really going to be a carrier, so therefore I shouldn't wear one. Or, look, you know, it's a recommendation, not compulsory. I'm trying to think, why wouldn't you wear a face mask if you if that's the recommendation? Thoughts? Uh, yeah, I reckon, oh, goodness, uh, question without notice. But I reckon lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of reasons. Yeah, you know yeah. me, I love to categorize reasons. Okay, so <laughs> some people will have, um, firstly, there'll be people who are making an informed decision not to wear a mask. So people who have read the pros and cons of masks, who have been following the mask debate, including a lot of healthcare workers, because yeah, yeah. there's been a lot of debate about whether they're useful or not. And the evidence, you know, is essentially um, they're, Useful in certain circumstances, especially areas where you can't social distance, but you've got to wear the mask correctly for the correct duration of time. They last about four hours, so you've got to change yeah. them over. Um, you know, you've, and uh, in certain circumstances, masks are not helpful, like early on in the virus when we just didn't have enough masks. And so it was super important that there was masks available for people who were in frontline jobs yep. so that they wouldn't have to leave their jobs. So it was not worthwhile for the community to have a recommendation about yep. Wearing mask, but then now we've got enough masks, so the situation changes. But there's still certain situations where masks can be worse. They're rare, like for example, um, you know, if you're wearing the wrong mask in the circumstances and it's giving you a false sense of security, because masks are still not the they're not the sort of like first line things. The first line thing is first line things are 1.5 meters social yeah. distancing, wash your hands a hell of a lot. Cough yeah, exactly. into your elbow. Yeah, 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 those, yeah. those things are massively important. Yeah. And masks are another layer after that. But they're certainly not as good as those three things. So there'll be some informed people who will be saying, okay, I'm... Um, I'm not going to wear a mask except when the evidence supports it. Now, the evidence is supporting it now where you can't social distance, trains, markets. Mm. So there could be people out and about who said, oh, I'm just going to pop into the South Melbourne yeah, market. True. Shit, I haven't got a mask. Yep. I'm going to take it. Yep. Now, there'll be other people. So that's reason number one. Reason number two I could think of will be some people will be thinking, um, well, they just won't have got them, of course. You know, I went out like you. I went and bought them. I could only buy these really cheap ones from my chemist. <laughs> Same with me. They're really cheap. <laughs> and to be quite frank, I put one on to go to uh, the super supermarket um, during the week yeah. and I couldn't see a thing because my glasses were so fogged. I was clearly going to bump into people, trip over myself, end up falling down the escalator, you know, get run over by a car. <laughs> I took the damn thing off and put it in my pocket. I've got to be honest. Yeah. Um, but having said that, when I went to work um, and I was going out and about in clinical areas, mm. um, you know, I could get a good quality one at work that had the metal uh, that can bend over your nose. Oh, I got the, the metal thing. It still makes your glasses yeah. fog up. Yep. Look, fun, look, just as an aside on that, I don't let me get off the topic, but as an aside, I put a picture of myself at work with a mask on Instagram and I, and someone commented, you know, I commented about how it was fogging up and a few yeah. people gave me tips on it. Yeah. But oh, give, us know, the, no, give, us the, give us the tips. I need well, to know the tips. Yeah, well, I didn't get any fantastic tips. So if people have got tips, let me know. But one <laughs> okay. person said, you know, so one of them was use an N95 mask because they've got the little valves and they don't fog up as bad. I haven't right. tried yet to test it out. And of course, N95 masks aren't the recommended masks yeah. for um, those situations. Yeah. And there's disadvantage, there's pros and cons of them. Um, another person said put tape along the top of the mask, some, you know, that hospital tape that you can buy in the uh, chemist, whatever it's called. What's that? Um, uh, you know, micro, micro, yeah, that micro. micro yeah. yeah, which is, you know, fine on your skin, doesn't hurt at all. Yeah. Um, and that stops it. But I haven't tried either of those yet. So if people idea. have got good tips. So then coming back yeah, to Yeah, send us in your tips. That's a great yeah, idea. Send us in your tips. But if um, the other thing that I think is some people, um, you know, they just want to break every rule. Some people don't think, you know, they don't take coronavirus seriously. We've seen that everywhere. You know, in fact, I think, did you point out to me a meme this week? You know, uh, it was a meme of, you know, something like... Um, 
if the, if uh, if we had the plague and it had a picture, of, you know, don't go near rats, and it had a picture of some American people licking rats or something. No, you know, wasn't there, nice, are, but... there are certain people who are just, you know, who just, you know, of course, all the conspiracy theorists and but a whole lot of other people who think it's a massive overreaction and they just don't want to follow the rules. Um, and uh, then I do, suspect do, do, maybe do you know the I think... hasn't got out to a lot of people. Do you know? Do you know? What I think, Steve. I, I I think some people might be playing the numbers game, thinking, okay, look, there's. I don't know, 300 active cases. I don't know how many active cases there are. Let's just say there are 300. In Victoria, there's yeah. about 1,000 now. So 1,000 cases. It was about cases. 900 last time I looked, so assume 1,000 so, today. And I think it's a false sense of security when they say it's 1,000 and there's, what, 4 million people in Victoria. Therefore, the risk is 1 in 4,000, something like that. And that. But that's a false risk because you don't know if you're that one. And if you are that one, it becomes, or someone around you is that one, it's, it, there's a huge consequence of that risk. So I don't think you can just look at the numbers and say, no, it won't happen to me, it won't happen to people I know. You've really got to take it seriously. Mm. Is that preachy enough? <laughs> is that it's the Sunday morning preach? Yeah, but still, <laughs> the guideline is that masks are recommended but not compulsory, and Absolutely. they're recommended for situations in which social distancing cannot That's be right. achieved. That's so right. you don't need a mask if you're going out for a walk. You know, if no. you're walking down a path and um, social no. distancing is no. incredibly easy. Like, you know, at the yeah. moment, if I go for a walk, I'm running, seeing about 30 people, but none of them are getting closer than three metres to me. It's because they avoid you, Steve. There's <laughs> that guy. It's because I look scary. It's because you look scary. You're a scary looking dude, let me tell you. Hey, uh... What about the mood around the lockdown in, of the flats and then us moving into isolation? Wow, it's been low, hasn't it? There's been, you know, I look, I, I, did, I think I did about four or five media things this week because so many people are anxious about, uh, not, you know, anxious is probably not the right word. They're, uh, they're deflated. There, there's a word. lot of anger in the word, word, deflated. I heard someone else say that on Facebook and, and, and uh, I think it might have been Catherine Daphne. I can't remember. Someone said yeah. deflated and I, I looked at it too and thought, yeah, that's how I feel. I yeah. feel deflated. Like the air's let out of it. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of like, you know, we're on a positive run and everything was going so well and Australia looked like it was, you know, yeah. kicking ass um, compared to, you know, the rest of the world and coronavirus and we're right down the list and, and then it turns out, yeah, Australia is, but not you, Victoria. <laughs> not you. <laughs> You're in the naughty corner. Hey, bye. By the way, just on the topic of the naughty corner, yeah. a hell of a lot of people are. I, I look personally. I take it as it's just bad luck, and it was, could have happened to any state because the behaviours yep. across Australia were consistent yep. everywhere. Everywhere yep. I looked, people were saying this was going on, yep. and it was just you know in my mind, it's a bit of damn bad luck, yep. and, it, and it's going to happen somewhere else at some stage yep. too. Probably every state's going to get this. We are in furious year. agreement. Yeah, and and yet everyone's going berserk and saying Dan Andrews stuffed up and all this sort of nonsense. It's just bad luck, my friends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure we could always do better. I'm sure we could always be tighter. I'm sure the bureaucracy around the um, the security guards in quarantine could have been better. But if anyone's ever worked in a bureaucracy, you'll know it's bloody hard to dot every I and cross every T. Now, I'm not being an apologist, but, you know, at least wait for the review before you burn off the government that's been doing such a great job. And Patrick does address this in our interview with him. He talks blame about culture, yeah. the blame. This is what I just found so fascinating. And it was so insightful. You've, if you're listening to us now, stay listening because you've got to listen to Patrick. You were, you were angry at Dan Andrews during the week over the quarantine. Oh, I wasn't at all. I oh, thought man, you put you, up. You, you, when you we were having confusing. It. No, that was oh, another I've, person I've, in, our, in our group. No, you have a look. That wasn't me. Okay, Not I'll at open, all. I wasn't angry right with now. Dan at all. Oh, in fact, right. I think Dan's been doing a good job. So all right. See, now I'll let listeners know that, that Steve is now looking at his WhatsApp Steve group. Has this text. makes for fascinating podcasting, Steve, when you look at your WhatsApp group. Tell me what you that... While I'm looking it up, because yeah. I feel I've maligned you inappropriately. You have, but you malign me all the time, um, but it's okay, man. I, you know, I've but normally I malign you appropriately. No, no, 40 um, years. This time it was 40 you're saying. <laughs> I'm keeping a black um, book yeah. for all your malignations. Hey, while I'm looking up this, tell yeah, me which is then. Fascinating, fascinating podcasting. Tell me what you make of the Prime Minister, he announced today that he's going to take a little break. And, I he, think, and, he, and just to let you know, because yeah. I was just reading about it before, he's copying not a lot, but a bit of flack. People saying it's like when he uh, is he taking a working fires. holiday or a holiday? He's holiday? going up. I think he's going up to a you know somewhere like the Gold Coast. Uh, it's school holidays. His kids are on school holidays, yeah. and he's going to take a working holiday with his family. I think absolutely fair enough. Can you imagine the sort of pressure uh, the Prime Minister would have been under the last three months? Like this is. <laughs> 
constant, constant, constant. So I think for him to take a break is good because he'll come back hopefully refreshed, feeling better, fresh perspective, but you just can't. I mean, we talked about this on our show uh, with Anna Corrin that a lot of people um, just haven't had a break and that's not good. People need to take a break and to look after themselves physically, mentally, their family, their relationships, all that sort of stuff. And you can come back to work with a fresh eye and refreshed. Now, Stephen, have you found the... um? Have you found yes, the yes. Um, you wrote a text that you mightn't have... You might have meant something else, but one of our friends was criticising Dan Andrews, yeah. a, uh, some, yeah. someone who we call Zhivago, and I argued against it, and you said, if you're talking about Dan Andrews, I agree to um, the Dr. Zhivago. Oh, really? But you might have been refer you might have been referring to something else, and uh, you know what it's like when there's a group text and everyone's arguing. Um, and uh, and I thought you meant about that, but you meant something else. Yeah, okay. Well, that's no, the no, beauty well, of these texts. Man. That's the problem with with uh, what's happening. You can or text messaging oh, or all context. That sort of stuff. The context, like because often you don't yeah. say reply to the thing. You reply to something further back, and it can get misinterpreted. So no, I look. I don't think he's done a bad job. I think anybody can. Uh, uh, can can point the finger. Or- Again, you and I talked about this in one of the really early podcasts. Can you imagine the pressure that these guys are under? I mean, I know what it's like when you're at hospital and you're dealing with lots of risk and decisions about, you know, who can go home and who can't after various, you know, things like suicide attempts. And, you know, you feel the weight of pressure. Now, these guys and you know, women and men, I assume, I mean, guys generally, you know, yeah, in yeah. government at the moment and making these decisions about going into lockdown and st- stuff and trying to um, incorporate decisions from a range of different experts in different fields and the decisions they know which it was like a second or first podcast we talked about this they know that in a year's time they'll almost certainly have been in a, you know some sort of equivalent to a royal commission and some of their decisions will have resulted in um, more people dying and some less people dying you know the pressure must be enormous i think we have to cut a lot of slack to our leaders at the moment i've got to say i've been super impressed in australia with you know i'm left-wing and i so so you know mm. you could argue i'm just argue i'm just supporting dan andrews but i'm also super impressed with scomo i just think he's done mm. a great job i loved a, um a message he put out this week where he said words the effect of we're all victorians at the moment we're all you know the whole country is working as one and uh this is you know and Come on, people, everyone pull in and yada, yada, yada. So, look, you know, I think they're all going on uh, pretty damn well. And, and by the way, Steve, I did just check that WhatsApp message as you were going on your little monologue. I think you're right. I think I did agree with Chivago. Well, I've changed my mind, and that just shows how flexible yeah. I am. Well, I've, I've, I, I've changed I, my mind lots yeah, of times. I knew exactly you had agreed, and I was only being kind by softening and saying, maybe you meant something else. <laughs> no, I didn't. You were right. I did agree, but I've, I've subsequently changed my mind. I'm glad to hear that. Hey, uh, what do we think just in terms of, you know, I suppose, you know, a few tips, you know, for what people should do. But, you know, I think it's worth us just touching on a a few tips for, you know, if you're feeling pretty shitty about this whole damn thing, what what, what do you reckon people should be doing? Well, first of all, I think you've got to, uh, preempt that you've got to prevent you've got to look after yourself even before you get to that stage and there's lots of things you can put in place and you know being locked up at home again you lose that sense of structure and it's structure 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 making sure you try and fit something in that you really like during the day and things that you do during the day that you have times that you do them I reckon that that works for me um, looking you know after- what that re- reminds me of you oh sorry keep going okay. I, I, no, no, I, no, you I was going to get no, you're the expert at- yeah no I was going to get sidetracked of that movie with um that English guy who's really, you know, gorgeous and he makes all these romantic uh, comedies. Um, Hugh, Hugh, Hugh Grant. Grant. Hugh yeah. Grant, you know, and it's the one where he's the son of someone who's made some super popular song and he lives off it. And he structures his day, I think he says, into 15 oh, minutes. That's about a boy, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, like buying a record, it's right, 15 that's minutes. <laughs> going to buy bread, 15 minutes. And we've got to do that for, um, for right. our isolation. You've got to structure it. You've got to think, what are you going to do? You know, what's morning, what's afternoon, what's evening? And then think long term as well we're in this for six weeks what am i going to go get through for the six mm. weeks how am i going to structure my social mm. engagements when am i are we going to go back to doing some you know family zoom drinks you know am i going to start doing you know making longer because it requires effort doesn't it you yeah. have to think about it differently yeah yeah you know you might start you won't have ever thought of this rob but you could maybe make sourdough that is a bloody good idea sourdough. Sourdough. <laughs> i'm gonna make sourdough. okay so we've got structure we've got planet <laughs> what else can we do well, I mean, like you always say, Steve, you know, look after your relationships, look after your physical health, look after your sleep, make sure you don't drink 
too much, all that yep. kind of stuff. If you're not exercising, start exercising. Even if it's just walking for 20, 30, 40 minutes a day, build it up, get some can exercise. Can I just in. jump in there for a second, Steve? Um, yeah. I've never been a big walker. A lot of my friends are big walkers. Did uh, you say walker? Because I thought you said walker. something else, which, oh, sorry, I forgot <laughs> the other thing you are. <laughs> you must have the N for a L for an N. No, and my, my wife's a big walker. Um, you know, I've never got, but I've suddenly I've started getting into walking. Like it's, oh, good it's really good. Oh, and you, nice. Because there's, you know, you just see everybody else walking because they've got to walk too. Mm. It's a social thing, but gee, it's quite only, nice yeah. walking. I only, f- I only flipped to walking a couple of years ago because, you know, I used to do triathlons, so I ran all the time, but I got a couple of injuries and had to stop running. And mm. I love walking now. I, I, I agree. Um, I love going for a walk for about an hour. Sometimes I listen to music, sometimes a podcast, and sometimes nothing. Some, and the no, no earphones walks, uh, they're almost the best because mm. you just get lost in your thoughts. But sometimes I need music to take my mind just, off things. Just with that, podcast. since I came, one of the things I learned on my sabbatical seven years ago was when, I, when, when I'm driving, don't listen to anything. Just have total no noise, just thinking time. Yep. And it's, and it's, it, yeah, and it's, it's a lovely idea. You know, and maybe the same thing with going for walks as well. Some, because it makes you concentrate on other things. My mind sort of goes and becomes creative and blah, 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 blah. So what else yeah. are we talking about, Steve? Hey, can I hit one? Uh, yeah, well, hit one um, one, yeah. the, so the things we've covered, get psychologically well, structure your time, do things, think what worked last time. Oh, yeah, so that's another one. Think what worked last yeah. time. And uh, if it worked well last time, do it again. If it didn't work well, knock it out and look for a few things and creative things are great like learning an instrument a lot of people are into things like yeah. gratitude journals different and then helping others is always a good one you mm. know the final thing so I, I i'm aware of the time and we've got to get on to patrick mm. um i don't want to hold people up too much but the final thing is if things are going bad get help and get help early Absolutely. um and don't forget all of the usual supports like your gp beyond blue lifeline kids helpline sane psychologists are now available really easily online mm. and many online. are bulk billing yeah. um ring your local mental health service if you're really worried. Um, there's so many options. Pick the option that's right for you. There's no one one size fits all. Um, if in doubt, go to your GP first because, you know, if you're as a bang for buck, they're not, you know, not every GP is fantastically into mental health, but um, as a bang for buck, um, they're the, probably the best first place. But don't forget all the others. And there are so many extra resources put on by pretty much every organisation that deals Good with point. mental health. Good point. Hey, well, we go to uh, Associate Professor Patrick Stokes talking about philosophy and how it is uh, might inform the coronavirus pandemic. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. And joining us now is Associate Professor Patrick Stokes from Deakin University. G'day, Patrick. Hello. Thank you for having me. So G'day, nice Patrick. To... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm okay. This right. always happens. Yeah. <laughs> we talk over each other the whole podcast. <laughs> hey, uh, no, it is so nice of you to join us on a Friday morning um, to talk about the pandemic and the impacts on your university and you and uh, philosophy in general. You know, you don't get to meet many philosophers, so why don't we start the ball rolling? Tell us how you became a philosopher. Entirely by accident. Um, this is almost a running joke. I, I, I used to say for years and years that I had never met anyone who ever got to university wanting to be a philosopher, right? Everyone gets sucked, wants to do something else and gets sort of sucked into it, um, more or less by accident. I did. Um, then I did say this theory once and somebody said, no, actually, I got to university wanting to be a philosopher. It's like, right, okay, so you've completely ruined my, you know, folksy <laughs> observation about uh, um, how philosophers are made. But, yeah, I, I got into it by accident. I, I got to uni. I thought I wanted to do English literature, then realized that what I actually liked about English literature was the ideas and the sort of, you know, almost, you know, meaning of life type stuff behind it. Um, and fell into philosophy more or less by accident because um, basically Tony Cody gave a really good talk during O week and I thought that looks like fun. And um, yeah, I, I um, basically got sucked in by um, some lectures early on about um freedom and responsibility and, and all that sort of thing in um, Marianne Tapper's Sartre um, lectures early on. And uh, yeah, that was the beginning of my downfall. So um, <laughs> I, I now teach more or less exactly that course to first years. And I always say to kids, this is how I got into it. So, you know, turn back now for God's sake. <laughs> Patrick, um, do you have a particular area of interest? Well, I did my um, PhD and a lot of my subsequent work on a 19th century Danish guy, Søren Kierkegaard. Mm. Um, But uh, I do a lot of work more broadly on issues around, um, well, death. I do a lot of stuff on the philosophy of death. 
um, the nature of self or the nature of personal identity, what it is to be the same person across time. Um, and there's a whole bunch of sort of related issues around moral psychology and, and, um, and so forth that are sort of mm-hmm. uh, uh, tied in with that. So there's a series of sort of overlapping themes or overlapping strands to do with sort of subjectivity and death and time, which I'm, I'm always sort of orbiting around. You know, that's that I think probably leads into, you know, the biggest question of the lot here. And I want to follow on to a sub part. So I want to ask you, you know, how can philosophy inform our lives during the pandemic? And I'm particularly interested in that point about our concept of self over time and whether our concept of self has changed now that our worldview has potentially changed. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I think that one of the interesting things about this pandemic has been the way in which it's taken a whole range of things that we take to be absolutely bedrock certainties about life that we just don't even notice. And it's thrown them up um, into, uh, into question. So one of the things about a lot of particularly resistance to a lot of the restrictions that are being placed on us now and the way things are, a lot of that resistance, a lot of it seems to come down to people thinking, but I have to do this right? I have to go to work. I have mm. to go and play golf. I have to go and hang out with my kids. There's this assumption that um, the way our lives have always been is just how they're always going to be, that there's a certain kind of trajectory that we're on and that trajectory to a certain extent defines who we are and how life is going to play out. Um, a, to use a somewhat dangerous and loaded term here, there's a certain kind of narrative trajectory that we have. And what this uh, pandemic is sort of showing to people is that so many of those things are actually entirely contingent. They can change very quickly. Uh, And that does leave you with the question of, well, hang on, who am I then if all of those things that I assumed life was going to contain or was going to um, involve, uh, even if they're not upended, they're at least suddenly shown to be kind of contingent. So I think there's an element of that. I mean, like the, the phrase you keep hearing over and over again is, well, we have to live our lives. And of course, one of the interesting um, things about this pandemic is that it's showing that actually we don't have to live our lives. Maybe we do actually have to put our lives on hold or maybe certain um, bedrock assumptions we had about how the next couple of years, or the next few years we're going to go uh, actually aren't correct. I, I, I really want to pick up on that interesting theme, Patrick, because maybe it isn't about putting our lives on hold. As you said, maybe it's about uh, r- imagining what our lives are like uh, if this were to go on for a while, mm. because we do define ourselves to a great extent by the things we do. And if we have to do something different, then we have to kind of in a way redefine ourselves, don't we? Yeah. I mean, particularly for anyone who sort of defines themselves in terms of their career and who suddenly loses their job um, or, you know, the way in which family relationships sort of define us and so forth. I think the other thing too is just the huge, huge um, dose of uncertainty uh, completely colors things because again, there's one sort of very prominent theory in philosophy that we're held together across time by narrative, by the ability to narrativize where we've come from and where we're going uh, and to tell a coherent story that holds it all together somehow. Um, Now I'm sympathetic to that theory. I have a certain kind of skepticism to it. I don't think it can be the whole story about personal identity, but um, there's something true to it. And of course, when you get these massive kind of doses of uncertainty, it greatly kind of constrains you, the, our capacity to narrativize in that way and to tell a story about what the next couple of years are going to look like or, you know, what I'm going to be in a position to do financially over the next couple of years or where I'm going to be living in a couple of years. So all this stuff suddenly gets sort of, um, I mean, it, it's not as if it wasn't uncertain. It always was. It's all subject to arbitrary reversal. It's just that now that fragility is much more um, overt, much more kind of, you know, salient to us than it was. You know, I'm interested just you know, before we carry, because I want to carry that theme on, but I'm also interested in the way you think, because, you know, for people who don't realise this, Patrick and I also do a segment on ABC about philosophy and psychiatry, and we compare and contrast a little bit the way we think about stuff. So when I hear you talk about anxiety, uh, uncertainty, my psychiatric brain flicks into the emotions, and I start thinking about how that triggers anxiety and what we do to calm people's anxiety and how we can manage it. And you know, I sometimes think I'm stuck in a little groove of the way I think. Whereas when you think it seems like philosophy gives you a carte blanche to think anywhere and in any direction. And I think on the one hand, that must 
be tricky for you because which direction do you go? Um, and so, you know, to use this example, you know, when you are hit with this thing like we've, of anxiety was always there, but now it's, we've been slapped in the face with it and we're all facing a tsunami of anxiety. Where does your mind go next? Does your mind go to why is it so or what we should do about it or is this some other direction? Uh, to a certain extent, to steal a line from Philip Larkin, the mind blanks at the glare. Um, I feel the same kind of anxiety as everyone else in, in the face of that. So, um, I mean, I, I, I would want to question whether we do actually, as philosophers at least, have absolute carte blanche to go anywhere because what we immediately run into is other philosophers saying, no, that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, no, you, you've argued that wrong. So, I mean, there is still, you still have to actually make the argument stand up, right? It still has to be a good argument. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of um, something like this, this sort of situation of anxiety that we're in now, or this kind of open-endedness, um, philosophers talk about anxiety in a slightly different way, and particularly a lot of the existentialist philosophers, people like Kierkegaard, who I mentioned a moment ago, when they talk about anxiety, they talk about anxiety as basically the feeling of freedom, right? It's the, the unpleasant feeling of knowing that nothing actually determines you to go one way or another. Um, and so one of the things that does have to happen there, I think, is that we do need to sort of, in dealing with the emotions that we deal with in this sort of time, we do need to be clear about which emotions we're dealing with, which teasing apart, which bits are anxiety. So which bits are the sensation of I'm responsible for myself and what am I going to do um, versus which bits are just fear, right? Which bits are actually here's an external thing that could happen to me and I'm, I, you know, I'm worried about what's going to happen with that. And they do require different sort of approaches, right? So fear does involve focusing on the external object and what do I do about the external object? Anxiety does um, bring you back to yourself and to confronting the fact that anxiety is in the face of yourself. And, you know, Sartre famously said it, it's in nothingness that, you know, you're confronted with that nothing makes me do this or that, you know, um, famous example from Sartre says, I'm walking along the, the cliff edge and there's a strong wind um, now I'm afraid that I could be blown off the cliff because of the strong wind, right? That's fear. Just what could happen to me insofar as I'm a body, right? There's an externality that can act upon me, but I'm also anxious that I could throw myself off the cliff, right? That nothing actually stops me from throwing myself off the cliff. Nothing also makes me keep walking on the path. And that's where the difference between anxiety and um, fear, at least as a, a one prominent strand of philosophers uh, put it comes into play and and those things all come into play when you're looking at your own reactions to something like like COVID-19 um, which leads me on to my question Patrick about what do we do with our fear uh, and with our anxiety and, and I think to a large extent what happens is we look for someone to blame an outside uh, object yeah. um, you know whoever that might be and we've seen certain uh, people countries being blamed um, and I'm getting the sense of that now, like we're blaming our premier for the rise in cases in Victoria now. Um, what do you think about that, that culture of blame and public anger? Where do you think that comes from? And, and what, what are your thoughts around it? Blame's comforting. You know, it's actually really <laughs> comforting to blame someone for something. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it, it, what's, what's the more comforting thought? The people in charge are incompetent buffoons who are getting us all killed. Um, that's a, not exactly a comforting thought, but it's more comforting the thought that it doesn't matter who's in charge, this bad stuff can happen and there's nothing you can really do to stop it. Mm. Um, you know, that's the far more terrifying thing. One of the things I actually work on is um, the ethics of conspiracy theory, um, mm. which is an interesting sort of topic. And one of the things that comes up in that again and again is that there's something weirdly optimistic about conspiracy mm. theories because they imply that there are these dark, malevolent, all-powerful actors pulling the strings. But that means there are strings. There are, there are strings that can be pulled. And if we just somehow overthrew the, the dark actors and put better actors in, good things would happen. In a way, that's more comforting than the thought that there are no strings. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's a great piece, actually, in The Age just this morning from um, Catherine Bennett, who's the head of um, epidemiology here at Deakin. And um, I say here, obviously, we're all working from home. And um, she's uh, basically saying, well, I'm not going to apologize. Um, and I don't think anyone else should be either because fundamentally, this is bad luck. And, you know, she's right, but we don't process bad luck very badly. We want there to be meaning and coherence behind things. And we look for patterns where there aren't any necessarily. I'm straying a little bit into in psychology territory here. I'm sorry. But, um, yeah, there's, we want this stuff to make sense. And we want there to be agency involved. You know, I'll, sh it's, it's I'll, 
I was going to say, I'll share that article um, on our uh, Shrink the Virus um, Facebook page and Instagram for people who want to have a look at it. I read it too when I woke up. It was one of the first things I saw. I thought she's done a pretty good job, Catherine Bennett. She's been really taking the lead in a lot of media um, around epidemiology and giving lots of uh, commentary. And I really like that article too because, you know, probably because it, it fits in with my, you know, I subscribe to that belief too. You know, and I, I, I'm convinced that we're going to have other states in Victoria in Australia we're going to have the same outbreak. It's bad luck. It's, you know, this idea that you can blame it on some security guard that maybe transgressed in some way, shape mm. or form or shared a lighter and this sort of business is just ridiculous because those things are happening 100,000 times across Australia every day mm. and yep. some with the chances and luck and winds of change are going to catch on to outbreaks and some are not and we're all going to go through this over the next two years and so, you know, I just, I, I just think this blame cultures um nonsense and we and we should all just do our best to um to to stop the flames and i wonder what you think in particular because i know you've got an interest in social media you know what you know what the role of social media how social media is changing our perception of this pandemic and our concepts of blame and anger mm. and uh, and whether you have any tips on how we could address what's happening yeah i mean there is no doubt that um social media rewards you for, you know, saying outrageous things, right? It rewards anger. And so, um, you know, if you're, there's no kind of reward in just saying, gosh, this is bad. I don't support the premier because I'm from a different party or whatever, but you know, nonetheless, we're all in this together. Da, da, da. There's no real benefit in that. Whereas going on Twitter and calling him dictator Dan and, you know, saying stuff like, you know, uh, that's clearly designed to achieve a political goal mm. that gets cut through. Right? Yeah. So in the attention economy, that's what gets you cut through. So yeah, that is corrosive. That is bad. That is harmful in a way. Um, but there are also ways in which you can use it. You, you can grab the medium and use it in ways that, that almost work against it. You can actually do, you do things with it that grab attention, but they're actually positive or that actually um, circumvent that dialogue. Um, but yeah, the other thing too, of course, is just that, well, social media to a certain extent throws you right back on yourself as an arbiter of um, what is or is not reliable information. And, you know, far more so than traditional media did. And that's deeply problematic to a certain extent because uh, a lot of us aren't very good at asking how good we are at um, assessing and evaluating information. Um, and, you know, so there's, that makes it much easier for things like, you know, um, conspiracy theories or pseudoscience or whatever to to circulate because it, people aren't necessarily applying the humility of saying well hang on what how do i know whether this is true or not who should i be listening to who shouldn't i be listening to yeah it's a really interesting point because traditional journalists did a number of things one that they obviously presented the story who what when where why etc but they also curated what got into the news and what didn't and we trusted them and they would be um, they would be monitored by editorial boards and public opinion. Whereas, of course, now on social media, we essentially take the curating, curating role onto ourselves because, you know, we keep blocking the people we don't like and liking the people we do like, which then feeds into the algorithm and gives us more of the same. And, you know, I find that's one of the most risky bits because I'm always scared myself. I could be, you know, I hear of countries that do it, whole countries, supposedly China monitors what goes on and monitors what can and can't get into the social media. And I'm fearful that that I'm doing the same thing inadvertently without realising it by liking certain things and not following or unfollowing other things that, you know, we end up in, I'll end up in my own personal echo chamber. And facing the biggest challenge we've ever all faced in our life, this worldwide pandemic, this risk to our economy, this risk to our loved ones, seems to me that it's hastened this echo chamber and we all have to step back and maybe turn off. So, you know, so I'm trying now, instead of turning on social media, to turn on ABC, The Age, you know, then again, you could argue I'm choosing my favourite media, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, I, you know, I just find it, it, it scares me a little. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's it's really interesting, though, that for all the talk of, uh, and I'm, I'm certainly not the first person to make this observation, but, you know, for all the talk of rampant populism, of distrust in government, of distrust in media, of distrust in institutions, that's exactly who people started looking to, right? As soon as there was this problem, there was this assumption that, well, government has to do something and the media, you know, is telling us what we need to do. And people did, to a certain extent, come back to um, institutions that we're continually told they've lost trust in. So I, I think some of that's interesting. And I think, you know, the, a lot of the the pushback against this stuff is 
is, is much fringier than it might appear if you're just getting all of your information from what you're seeing on social media. Because social media kind of, it does amplify the fringier voices because they're the ones that get the attention. They're the ones that stand out. Um, and because, you know, there's no particular reason to say on social media, you know, yes, I agree with public health officials because that, that's more or less a default. It's the people who say things like this is all a conspiracy or whatever. They're the ones that actually stand out and, and therefore you can get a distorted picture of what the actual kind of epistemic environment looks like. I've got to say that I don't... Um read news from social media um uh and i tr I'm, i actually you know whenever i go around to my mum's house i try and watch fox news because you know she's got it on her telly just to see what uh, the kind of the other side says uh compared to the the media that i traditionally consume like you know abc news and stuff um but it, you know which brings me to the question patrick sh should we not be teaching much more in schools uh how to look at news items or information because i mean we don't we i'm not sure that we that kids get a lot of it nowadays do they i mean i might be wrong but um i think they do get some do in, in school yeah. but i mean yeah it's funny when i first started undergrad teaching full time um i thought well i'm now teaching students who were you know who've grown up on the wild lawless frontier of uh, of the internet they'll have a really good bullshit filter, right? They'll be mm. really, really good at, at, at sniffing out things that are fake and they'll know how to tell a good source from a bad mm. source, and, you know, just because they've had to all their lives, right? Surely they've got street smarts. And in fact, what I found was more or less the opposite, that it was mm. kind of like, well, you just Google it and the first thing that comes up, that's the answer. <laughs> and that's not true of all of them. I don't want to generalize across all of, all mm. of my students. But um, yeah, I think we're in an environment where we do need much more kind of... Um, we do need to be educating much more about how you tell a good source from a bad source. Mm. But the tricky thing with that is that precisely what counts as a good or a bad source, uh, or even whether anyone has the authority to determine something as a good or a bad source, that's one of the things that's in question. Right. But there are, there are some, but there are some standard journalistic uh, strategies, like, you know, you triangulate a story, you try and get two sources to verify all those sorts of things, which on mm. social media, you don't have to do. I mean, just basic, basic kind of journalistic stuff like that. Um, I mean, this is where I think kids need to be taught about that sort of stuff. Certainly, um, I, look, I thought my kids were quite savvy at it too. Mm -hmm. As you say, they're, they're, they're not as much as I thought they were. No. Yeah. But I mean, we all fall into it to a certain extent. You know, yeah. I, I don't think yeah. anyone is critically assessing the authority of every single news article that they're mm. um, absorbing. Yeah. They are good luck to them. But I mean, we have to sort of put, you know, do, put a lot of the work off into these kind of uh, assumptions about who we can who we can just trust more or less automatically. Otherwise, you'd never get anything done, right? Yeah. So um, we do tend to, instead of saying, okay, I'm going to uh, look at every single um, story on its merits, we do tend to say things like, well, I'll listen to the ABC because they're generally pretty good. They've got good in, you know, mm. editorial standards or whatever. I won't listen to, you know, Newsmax or One News Network or whatever or because you know, they're dodgy sites and they continually you know, put up stories that don't make sense or whatever or that, that don't turn out to be true. Um, there's already an element of political bias in that, though. Mm -hmm. There's already an element of, you know, well, I'm going to agree with these people because what they say largely agrees with my mm -hmm. worldview. Yeah. Um, so, but, I mean, yeah, I, I think we, we, we can't get through our epistemic environment without some sort of background assumptions about who we can and can't trust. Mm. I mean, you know. Yeah, very true, very true. Hey, I want to ask you also about your university. Obviously, um, the universities have been one of the most impacted organisations from the virus and from shutdown and having to shift the way you work online. How you're at Deakin University, how is Deakin um, coping and adapting to the pandemic? Sure. Um, so I'll preface this by saying that um, I'm not allowed to discuss things like management um, in a public forum, so or management decisions in a public forum. So there are Fair certain enough. you know areas I can't go. Um, but yeah, look, so Deakin, as I think people might be aware, is is, um, uh, is facing a large number of job cuts, and that's all being worked through at the moment. It's quite a controversial area, so it looks like we are going to lose a number of colleagues, um, whichever way that goes, uh, which is really unfortunate. So that that obviously has a bit of a it, it does you know, dampen morale a bit. Um, one of the things I think Deacon's been lucky at is that um, we've always done a lot of online teaching. 
So while there is a lot of work involved in taking units that were mostly running on campus with some online teaching and making them all online, we did have the infrastructure there and we did have a bit of experience there. So that made it a little bit easier than it might've been for other things. Um, I'm talking primarily about humanities here, of course, it's different in different areas where you've got more kind of practical teaching uh, stuff. So, you know, um, but yeah, it, it, it does knock people around. I think the uncertainty in particular doesn't sort of knock people around you know universities in general are very slow moving animals right the budget's set a year in advance um they they're huge organizations there's a very large number of people they're very dispersed organizations um in terms of the the structure of of how they operate so you know they're, they're very slow moving they're rarely very quick to adapt to things um and on the whole i've been impressed with the way in which we've adapted to this this current sort of scenario but um yeah, it, it, the, because they are slow moving, that does make them seem like there's a, a fair degree of certainty about how one year is going to look very much like yeah. the last. And a lot of that's now been thrown out the window. I've got to say, I'm completely with you, brother, about universities being incredibly slow moving. They're like a giant oil tanker, like to try and stop them or turn them around just takes a huge amount of effort. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I've been incredibly surprised and reassured and thrilled especially with the medical students, how quickly the university adapted to, to changing their curriculum and their experience. It's just, it's, 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 been, it's been quite heartening, but have, <laughs> nonetheless, how are you personally coping with uncertainty, Patrick? What are you, you know, what are you doing to cope? Yeah, with it? it's, it's affecting me in ways that I'm um, probably not even entirely aware of, but it's certainly like just going into this last lockdown, I'm, I'm finding this one just feels bleaker. Mm. Uh, somehow um even though i know the six-week date is is arbitrary and um you know that they've said it's not necessarily going to be an automatic opening up at the end of that i have actually written down the number of days on a whiteboard in, in my workspace <laughs> here and i am actually changing God. we're on day 41 now of 42 so um you know i'm uh, that at least gives me some sort of you know yeah. degree of hope there but yeah I, I think the fact that it's a reversal I think that's really hard to deal with, right? Like, it's like we got through the last one and it was a bit rough. And for those, I mean, I've, I've got primary school age kids, right? They're at home. We love having them at home, but it does, you know, actually helping them with their remote learning does mm. create difficulty when we're both working full time. And, you know, it's, um, it does throw a lot of things, you know, into into difficulty the other thing too i should say too i've been very lucky i was actually on study leave in, in the first half of the year um i've got a book on um dead people on the internet that i'm working on that um i was working on the, um, the first half of the year second half of the year of course i'm going back into teaching and that just um that also makes it difficult because there's suddenly all these dozens of little admin tasks that just constantly pop up and that that can drain you too so um yeah it's it's, it's tricky so what about the students? What advice do you have for the students at university about how to, um, you know, keep their heads up and keep motivated and, you know, how they adapt to what's going on? Go easy on yourself. That's the main bit of advice I'd give to them and, and reach out for help as soon as you need it. You know, like I, I always say to students, like if you need extensions or anything like that, just let me know because, you know, we want you to get through. We want you to get through well and we'll want to do whatever we need to do to help you do that. Um, there are limits obviously on what we can do, but you know, it, everyone wants you to succeed through this. And, you know, the, in a sense, I'd give the same advice to students as I'd give to academics and to anyone else working from home, which is that whatever standards of productivity you had before, um, that was before, right? You know, so don't be judging yourself according to standards of productivity that, you know, or standards of activity even um, that hold when there's not a pandemic going mm. on, you know, you, you you have to learn to sort of adjust to the fact that your output's maybe not going to be what it was or things aren't going to go the way you, you thought they were. So we've got to kind of change our expectations. Um, in fact, I, I just got an email from a, a friend, a, a work colleague, and she said, um, I'll see you AC after Corona. And so there's this, there's this idea of, you know, before Corona, during Corona, after Corona, and that's how our minds are working. 
It's Patrick, like I'm giving my way my age here a little bit, but it's like um, you know watching an episode of the Sullivans or something in real time constantly. It's constantly you know when this is all over, damn the war, Grace. You know, it's it's this thing where you know, nothing's really happening immediately around us, but we're all sitting here with this big, heavy thing hanging over us that we're just hoping will be over at some stage, and we don't know when that will be. Um, and probably like wartime, we're all making very optimistic assumptions about how soon it will be over that, you know, I'll have a vaccine by Christmas sort of thing. Mm. But uh, yeah, it's... That's the interesting thing about history is that you can look back on it and there was a defined end date, but we don't have our defined end date yet. And that's what creates, I think, a lot of the uncertainty. But that's a whole can of worms. Patrick, what's one thing you're doing now during the pandemic that you're doing better than from before? Oh, that's interesting. Um, that's one thing I'm doing better. God, that's a really interesting question. I don't know that I really have much of an answer for it, to be honest with you. I'm, sl- I'm, I'm, I'm. You can take it on notice and come back to us. Yeah, no, that's interesting. <laughs> that's interesting. I, w- I was going to say I'm, I was sleeping better. I was actually, uh, but okay. uh, I, I don't know that that really. It's true. <laughs> is there something that you want to, that when the pandemic's over, you want to carry on? You know, something that you've known, whether it's, you know, online stuff or personal things mm. or social things, is there yeah. something that you think that you've discovered that you want to carry for, even if they say tomorrow, vaccine everyone, and we're going to give it out the next day, and we're back to normal on Wednesday, next week. Um, what will you want to keep going? Oh, God, I don't know. This, this will sound incredibly superficial, but uh, I bought the kids an Xbox just before everything completely shut down last time because I thought we're going to need this. Um, and actually just really immersing myself in long-form narrative games is, is a new thing for me. I've been, been playing Red Dead Redemption 2 and I've just been absolutely blown away by the depth of it, actually, the emotional depth of it and the, the thematic depth of it. Um, so you're so doing video games better is what you're saying. Well, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, well, because, you fine. know, I mean, I grew up playing like Wolfenstein 3D or whatever, you know, I'm used to sort of really <laughs> basic sort of things that have some sort of narrative to it, but just walk and shoot, walk and shoot, right? And I've never had a console or anything. And now at the age of 42, I've finally got my hands on one. Mm. And, um, and yeah, I'm actually, I'm, I'm astonished at the, where the, the, at the craft of it, you know, mm. the, and of, um, I've, yeah, I've been really enjoying that aspect of it. You know, actually, I actually love that because, you know, I've always thought that good thing, you know, popular things are popular often for a good reason. And we often turn our nose up. And you've heard a lot of people for the last two decades turn their nose up at the risk of video games. But like you, my son's a bit older. Mine's 24. So, you know, I... I love taking part in all those things. And it reminded me when I was a kid, you know, my dad's an actor, so we were allowed to watch as much bloody TV as we liked. And we always had every TV show going, and that's what we did. We watched it. And you did, and when we grew up, it was always, you're going to end up with square eyes, you're going to go blind, it's going to make you dumb, it's going to do this, it's going to do that, don't watch too much TV. Whereas I, my experience was always, no, this is fantastic. I love the television. And so I've always been suspicious of the people who say, oh, no, don't get onto the video games. Don't get onto this. So, you know, I reckon good discovery. I reckon, yeah, go for it. And the next thing you should buy is one of these little, you know, um, cars that plugs into the Xbox where you can drive the car the and the Mario Karts or whatever yeah. it is. All the whole works. You know, I, I see dads, dads buy them, put them next to their kids and they just, come on, kids, we're having another race. Get in your car. Uh, hey, Patrick, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us on Shrink the Virus. I, uh, you know, I think some of those philosophical insights are just amazing. I really, you know, I'm still thinking about one of the very first comments you made, which is like, you know, anxiety is the whatever the emotion of freedom. It's the, you know, that's the thing we feel when we're faced with all freedom. I'm going to be thinking about that all weekend. So very much appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Great fun. Thanks, Cheers. Well, that was Shrink the Virus for this week with Associate Professor Patrick Stokes from Deakin University, our favourite philosopher officially as of right now. Um, hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to tell your friends and family and subscribe. And remember, we have a Facebook page called Shrink the Virus, Instagram, Shrink the Virus, Twitter, Gmail, shrinkthevirus at gmail.com. And uh, we want to thank you. Why, why don't you do all the thank yous, Roberto? I should remind listeners that there is a website called Steve Allen with the two E's in the middle, steveallen.com with loads of info and some of the papers that we've written together. You know, that... Although I've been neglectful and I've hardly touched it for about two months. Oh, so, okay, maybe maybe uh, that's why I haven't been mentioning it because I feel guilty. But we don't feel guilty about how wonderful the Triple R people are. Absolutely not. We love the Triple R people in particular. Um, Beck, Mia, 
Grace, Elizabeth, and Michael. Thank you. Um, look, you can see my hands are over my heart. Thank you so much, guys, for making this show happen. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.